The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia, a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org slash seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Windhoek for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience stories from the world of ore deposits. This podcast is brought to you by the Society of Economic Geologists and is sponsored by ALS Goldspot Discoveries. You can listen on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and more. My name is Hallie Keevil, Project Geologist at Anglo-American, and I'm your host for this week's episode. In last week's episode, you heard all about geomicrobiology at all stages of the mining value chain. Today, we'll be talking about government initiatives to fund mineral exploration, specifically the Yukon Mineral Exploration Program, or YNEP, that provides financial support to people and companies prospecting in Yukon Territory. We have some great guests today to discuss their prospecting paths and how this program has helped them out. Scott Castleman of the Yukon Geological Survey has kindly agreed to introduce the topic of the YNET program itself. So without further ado, I will introduce Scott. Scott Castleman is a registered professional geoscientist with a Bachelor of Science degree in geology from Carleton University in 1985. He worked in the mineral exploration industry from 1985 to 2015. He served two terms as president of the Yukon Chamber of Mines and three years as the chair of the Dawson Regional Planning Commission. In May of 2015, Scott joined the Yukon Geological Survey and is currently the head of minerals geology. Thank you so much, Scott, for joining us today, and uh, thanks for being part of this episode. Thanks for having me, Hallie. So first of all, I guess, could you just tell us what YMEP is, what it stands for, and, and how long you've been working on the program? Yeah, YMEP is the Yukon Mineral Exploration Program. It's a program that uh, the Yukon government has been running since about the mid-1980s. Currently, it's uh, operated as Yukon Mineral Exploration Program, or YMEP. How has it shifted in what it entails? Like, is, has it always just been to fund prospectors, or have there been elements of it that sort of came and went yeah, it, to a certain degree, it, it was originally set up to fund prospectors and it would give them seed money to get out and allow them to get into further areas of field in the Yukon assistance with helicopters and, and some of the operating costs that they would have analyzing uh, samples. Uh, and then it developed into a more broad ranging program. And that switch focused mostly on the mineral exploration program in the uh, mid-90s or so, where it would actually fund junior mining companies and and private companies, as well as prospectors, to assist them in some of the work that they did. And then in about the mid-2000s, we added the placer industry to it as well. And what's your role in the program and how long have you been in that role? So I'm the head of minerals geology at the Yukon Geological Survey, and our group manages the YMEP program. Uh, So I would supervise our YMEP geologist who would take care of the program. And how many people typically apply each year and how competitive is it? Like what percentage of people get denied funding? Yeah, it really varies. But I think the maximum number of applicants we've ever had in a year is probably about 150. This current year, we're looking at 63 applicants, which is on the lower end. And typically about 
50 to 75% of the applicants will get funded. The budget has varied. It's increased over time generally, uh, starting at around the half a million dollar mark in, in the 80s. And up to right now, we're at $1.4 million is the funding for the program. But in 2020, uh, with pandemic hitting and the difficulties in the industry, uh, especially getting funding and that kind of thing, we actually increased it to 2.5 million for for a one year, uh, one time event. Uh, Wow, amazing. And do people, is there a maximum cost you can request, like a maximum amount of funding? So as I mentioned, there is a Placer module. And for that, the the individual or company needs to provide 50% of the funds. The YMIP program would provide 50. And that's to a maximum of $40,000. For the Hard Rock modules, there are three. There's a grassroots module where the proponent, typically they're individuals, could get up to $15,000. And that would be 100% of the funding that they could get. So they don't have to match with their own funding. And then there's the focused regional module where a proponent can get up to $25,000. YMIP will contribute 75% and the proponent needs to provide the other 25%. And then the last module in the hard rock side is the target evaluation where the proponent could get up to $50,000 and they have to match it 50-50. Okay. Wow. I can see how this would be extremely beneficial, not just for, you know, early stage prospectors, but also ultimately for the Yukon government. I mean, how many of these projects that you've uh, been witness to have become advanced projects? Oh, let's look at, at some of the stats. So over the life of the the prospectors assistance, the YMIP and the YMIP program, the government has contributed about $33 million. And that's translated into about $3 of investment from the mining companies to every dollar that the government has put in. And then on top of that, there have been some amazing discoveries that have come out of the the YMIP program. And I'll I'll mention uh, four of them. So on the hard rock side, your uh, audience may be familiar with the coffee project that Newmont Corporation now has. Yeah, I was wondering. I know I know Sean Ryan was involved in discovering that. Yeah, Sean knows how to use the YMIP program and he's probably uh-huh. one of our great of our greatest users and one of the greatest successes that we've had in the program. So Sean got YMIP funding in 2006 and 2007 for the coffee project. Total investment from the Yukon government was $30,000. To date, since that time, there has been $382 million spent on coffee by Newmont, Kamenak, Sean, and all the companies leading up to where we are today. And a mine permit is being prepared for that project. So the billions of dollars that will come out of that project all came out of a $30,000 investment from the Yukon government. Wow, incredible. Another Sean Ryan success story was what the White Gold property. In 2003, Sean got $25,000 under the YMIP program, made a significant discovery a few years later, and to date there's been $53 million spent on the White Gold deposit. Still not a, not in a permitting stage yet, but I, the resource there is, I think, 1.25 million ounces. Another success story, which is actively being explored right now, is the ORMAC project of Banyan Gold. They received YMIP funding in 2016, 2018, and 2019. Uh, total amount there was $100,000. To date, there has been $30 million spent on that project, and they're actively drilling right now. And they, they announced a approximately 1 million ounce resource two years ago that is being updated this spring. We expect new numbers coming out of there soon. And that is probably going to be the largest drill program going on in the Yukon right now. Huh. 
Those are three hard rock success stories. And I'll mention one placer success story. The Big Creek, Clear Creek area of Yukon. So Clear Creek is between Victoria Gold's Eagle Gold Mine and the past producing Brewery Creek Mine. In 2014, a uh, individual got a $35,000 YMIP grant there, did some placer exploration and vended the property to a placer miner, a, a famous Yukon placer miner, Stuart Schmidt. And that creek now produces 8,000 ounces of gold per year. So if you do the math on that, that's quite a bit of money coming out of, it's about $16 million, give or take, coming out of that creek from a $35,000 YMIP investment. That is absolutely incredible. I wasn't expecting such great success stories, but I guess it makes sense. The program's been around a long time. There's a lot of exploration in the Yukon, a lot of really good deposits in the Yukon. So because this is so successful, I mean, I would imagine that there's other programs like it, but I've, I've only really heard of YMAP, and that's probably just because of my own network and my own working in the Yukon. But do you know of any other funding initiatives that are similar in other provinces or even globally? Yeah, well, I know across Canada, we we actually often get calls from other jurisdictions because this program is is very well recognized, the one we have in the Yukon. There are similar ones scattered across the country. There is a similar program that runs in the Northwest Territory, slightly different, but, but the same kind of idea. And Newfoundland has a prospector assistance program that is also very well recognized. And it's changed over the years, but it, it's used there to assist their early stage projects. And, and I'm sure there are others, but those ones are ones that I'm aware of right now. And globally, do you know of any, I guess? Yeah, I don't know beyond beyond our reach. I have a hard enough time keeping track of what's going on here, let alone in other countries. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, if our listeners know of a great funding initiative that's similar to YMAP in another country, they can contact us and let us know and we can do an episode on that. Yeah, absolutely. And if they're looking to start one up somewhere else, I'd be happy to send you copies of our rules and how it works. Great. Thanks, Scott. Thank you very, very much for your time. And thank you for being a part of this podcast episode. No troubles. Thanks for having me, Holly. After that great intro to the program from Scott, we are now going to chat to Jack Milton about his prospecting adventures supported by the YMAP program. We recorded this portion of the interview in April 2022, before the summer field season started. And at the end of the episode, we'll hear about how his summer panned out with his claims in the Yukon. Jack has spent the past 14 years working on projects across the Yukon, Northwest Territories, and BC for junior exploration companies. Jack has a passion for testing new ideas and technology in the exploration environment from grassroots exploration through resource expansion to the development of advanced stage projects. By day, Jack is the chief geologist for fireweed metals, exploring for sediment-hosted zinc deposits in the Selwyn Basin. And by night, he pursues his own search for porphyry copper deposits in the Dawson Range, Yukon, using zircon geochronology and geochemistry. In 2015, he completed a PhD in geological science at the Mineral Deposit Research Unit, University of British Columbia, focusing on the sediment-hosted copper deposits of the Redstone Copper Belt. Prior to this, he completed an MSc in mining geology and an honors BSc in applied geology at the Camborne School of Mines, University of Exeter. He is a fellow of the Geological Society of London and a professional geologist with EGBC. All right, well, thanks for joining us on the podcast today, Jack. Yeah, thanks, Holly. Very happy to be here. I guess we'll get right into the, the YMAP program itself, since uh, Scott Castleman kindly did the introduction for us. What do you personally think is the most valuable part of the YMAP program in terms of how it can help early stage prospectors like yourself? Yeah, I think that one of the best things about the YMAP program is that it just encourages people to get out there and test a new idea or go and look at an old area that hasn't been looked at in a long time. Uh, I like that it prioritizes these areas and prioritizes remote areas that would not otherwise see much work. 
what I really like about YMAP is that it supports individuals and prospectors, and it can give 100% funding to a project. You don't even have to be a geologist. You know, it's, it's a prospecting program. So anyone with a good idea is eligible for funding. Uh, you look at other jurisdictions in Canada, they run similar projects in Australia. A lot of these are restricted just to exploration companies and are quite sort of bigger grants with more lengthy a- application processes. YMAP application process is, is quite straightforward. You present your idea in the document and it's assessed by a panel of geologists and uh, the best ones get funded. So it's it's out there, it's available. And, and I think that other jurisdictions should, should take that and be giving out grants in order to encourage exploration, particularly in remote areas or expensive places to work. Yeah. Imagine the Yukon's quite expensive if you don't have your own funds to get up into the middle of nowhere. I mean, a lot of it's helicopter access only, right? It is, yeah. There's some very remote parts of the Yukon that you need a helicopter or fixed-wing access to get to. And that's a major barrier for a lot of exploration for companies and individuals. And I guess this is a good question for you. I assume you're a BC resident, not a Yukon resident, or are you a Yukon resident? I'm a BC resident, and I was able to participate in the program for the last couple of years. Interesting. So can you tell us what got you started? Like when, what year you first applied, where the idea came from, and what YMAP's enabled you to do over the last few years? Yeah, so I first applied in 2020, and it was actually a project that was born out of COVID lockdown. Uh, when COVID hit, I spent some time working on an idea that I've, I've had wanted to explore for a long time, which is using a new technique, a new idea to test an old sort of search space in the Yukon, which is looking for porphyry deposits. And the idea that I'm testing is using zircon in stream sediments to try and find new porphyry targets in these areas that have been looked at for years in terms of prospecting. The two things I'm looking at are uh, dating these zircons, but also looking at the fertility indicators uh, using the geochemistry of these zircons too. Are you using only zircon or are you using other heavy heavy minerals in the stream sediment samples? Yeah, so I actually take a stream sediment sample and do porphyry copper indicator mineral logging. So it does look for other heavy minerals, uh, gold, looks for gold, and minerals that are associated uh, with porphyry alteration and mineralization. But the chemistry work that I'm doing is just on the zircon. And it's primarily the dating of the zircon that I found to be effective at trying to find particular intrusions that are known to be associated with mineralization across the Yukon uh, in areas where when you go and look at a bedrock map, they don't appear to exist. But, you know, I found plenty of drainages where it's producing zircons of the right age where it doesn't say there's anything on the map. So that's it's a tool I'm using to reduce the search space and refine area selection. So I've, I've looked at a very large part of the Yukon and in a very cost-effective and cheap way, have honed in on a few different areas that are producing these zircons, or streams are producing these zircons, that I think are associated with porphyry targets. Okay, and, and in terms of Yukon porphyry deposits, what is the most prospective age range? So what I'm looking for is a uh, casino age of the zircons, these very late uh, Cretaceous ages, and these occur in Yukon as very small volume intrusions. And that's key in locating a search space where you think that you can find these things because there's not much outcrop in these areas. It's sort of rolling hills with, with very little outcrop. So they could easily be missed in, in regional mapping as small enough to be missed. These larger, big batholith type intrusions, pretty hard to miss. Um, but these small volume intrusions could easily 
be nested in larger, earlier batholiths all across Yukon and all across the world. Interesting. I have so many questions. Um, I guess how the fir- my first question is, how did you narrow in on an area? You said you had a large part of the Yukon. I assume there's large parts of the Yukon that you're not looking in. Are you in a specific belt? Are you, I mean, what's the square kilometer coverage that you're, that you're trying to cover with your stream sub program and what size catchments are you then sampling? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So I, I honed in on the Dawson Range uh, in Yukon uh, in an area where there's this gap of porphyry occurrences in a belt that I think should otherwise you know be in, uninterrupted. And um, it's in an area that's escaped glaciation. So that was, was one of the factors in, in choosing an area selection. I didn't want the influence of, of glacially derived zircons within the drainages because that's going to complicate things another level. And I focused on an area that, and it's related to the lack of glaciation, an, an area that has deep oxidation. And that is because most of, of the previous work in the Yukon has, has focused on areas that have anomalous stream sediment geochemistry. And if you look at all the assessment work that's been filed in the Yukon, almost all of it is within areas that are, are broadly anomalous. And the sort of antithesis of that is that in the, all these other areas that don't have stream sediment anomalies, there's been essentially no or very little work. And in, in an area that's been deeply oxidized, it's possible that all the copper has been leached out of those rocks and they don't produce these kind of classic stream sediment anomalies. Or if they do, they could be quite subtle. Whereas zircon is going to survive that oxidation process and will still be in the stream sediment as fresh as it was in the rock. Right. Interesting. And so in terms of catchment size, do you have like a minimum catchment size and a maximum catchment size that you're looking at? Or are you trying to start really big and then cross off areas of the map that, that are not prospective? I'm not sure what you can do with, you know, one YMAP grant in one summer, or how many people you have in the program. Or... Yeah. So, I mean, to put it into perspective in terms of how cost efficient I think it was, um, you know, in 2020, I, I surveyed an area that was over 200 square kilometers and it took one day and, you know, the total cost of the program was just over $30,000. So yeah, they're expensive samples to run. But when you consider that working in remote areas, your cost is largely proportional to the time that you spend out there. So if you can get in and quickly survey an area uh, very cost effectively, which I think you can do with these kind of uh, Zircon samples. And in terms of how big of drainages, you know, did I go for that? Well, it's, it's very variable, but I kind of developed a technique of assessing these things to a level of statistical confidence that's not possible with traditional stream sediment geochemistry. So it gives you good confidence, both that there either is something there or that there isn't something there and you can move on. The first year it was just myself and the helicopter pilot. And uh, we took a jet ranger out into the Dawson range and collected sediments from a, a whole bunch of creeks. And last year, I took uh, one other geo and spent about four days in total looking at an even bigger area. Have you staked any claims yet, or is this all on open ground that you're working? I have staked claims on these drainages where I'm seeing these casino-aged zircons. And you go and look in those drainages, and there's no casino sweet rocks mapped. And all across Yukon, these uh, rocks are almost always associated with porphyry copper gold uh, and moly mineralization. Did you find in those catchments, did you find any other indicators of porphyries or 
or were you just looking at the age of the zircon? Did you have any other minerals that would indicate that a porphyry would be there? Yes. So there's, uh, you know, in some of these catchments, there's gold grains as well. And that's part of porphyry copper indicating mineral logging is, is looking at how many gold grains come out. You're making a zircon separate, you know, using density separation. So the gold grains uh, will come out with that as well. And again, is, is another good thing that will survive oxidation and be present in a stream sediment still. Uh, but many porphyries will lack that sort of plaza gold, if you like, on top of them, it, particularly if the epithermal environment's no longer there uh, and hasn't been preserved. It could be too fine grained. But in some of these drainages, I'm also seeing gold anomalies. Uh, some tungsten minerals, like at the plaza on top of Casino and Canadian Creek, uh, you see tungsten minerals that are associated with that, uh, likely derived from uh, the porphyry too. So yeah, I'm looking at a broader suite uh, of minerals, not just zircon. Nice. So the first summer you went out, you were just looking on open ground. Then you got some results back. And then last summer you staked. Is that what the process was? Yeah. So I did the staking in April last year. And I actually just got back from Yukon. I did a bit more staking uh, this April. April is a pretty good time to go out and stake in Yukon. You've got nice long days and it's nice and crisp and cool. Do you still have to do four post staking or how does that work in the Yukon? In the Yukon, it's uh, ground staking. So you've got to get out there and... Uh, put the posts in the ground or chop trees down and make posts. And it's, uh, it's a very antiquated system. You can't, uh, you can't do it from the comfort of your own desk. <laughs> Is there a, do other provinces or territories have that same staking system or are most online now? Most are online. NWT still has uh, ground staking, but uh, I think almost all of the other provinces or territories have, have map staking. So then I guess, what is, what does your summer look like this year? Are you going to, going to go back to those claims and, and, take stream sediment samples in smaller catchments or are you going to go do some ground mapping or what's the plan? Yeah. So the plan for this summer would be to do a bit more stream sediment sampling um, and also soil sampling uh, and get in and do a sort of focus grid on these, on these drainages. So last year I, I went in and, and did exactly what you said there, focus on smaller drainages and hone in on where these zircons are coming from. And I did that successfully last year. I uh, took a few soil samples and found some anomalies. And I'm going to head back there and try and find these casino suite intrusions with, with soil sampling. I'm not sure how many people it's going to be this year, but uh, it's probably going to be more than just me. <laughs> I think it'll be a little bit different this year, probably stay out on the claims and, uh, and camp out there. So I guess what would success look like for you in terms of next steps and what you would find before you would then potentially option it or sell it or yeah, start a company? And, and would that be different to what YMAP would view as a success? So I think, I think what YMAP would view as a success is that more money is being brought in and spent in the territory. It's to encourage exploration and encourage spending in Yukon-based businesses. What I would view as a success ultimately is... Yeah, selling these claims on to an exploration or mining company. And I think that I would also see another version of success, which is the validation that this new idea works in the search space. And I think to some degree that that has been validated in that I've gone out there and found these casino suite zircons in these drainages and that those rocks must be there, present in the bedrock. But the real validation, of course, would be finding a large casino style porphyry intrusion or porphyry deposit out in Yukon in an area of, of, uh, of very little previous exploration work. And is there anything else you want to tell our listeners about your claims or about YMAP or about Yukon porphyries in general? Well, I'd say that I'm, uh, 
I'm working by myself right now, but uh, there's any companies out there that want to change that, I'd encourage them to reach out. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jack. And I look forward to hearing more about what you get up to in the Yukon this summer. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Our next speaker is Yukon-born Ryan Berkey, who we will also hear from before and after the summer field season up north. Ryan Berkey has worked across many facets of the mining industry and has been involved with Yukon Mineral Exploration since 2010. He has been involved in all stages of exploration, from the idea stage, early prospecting and discovery, through to advanced exploration and resource definition. He is currently an exploration geologist for Victoria Gold Corp. Previously, he was an exploration geologist at Archer Catherine Associates from September 2019 to March of 2020, and an exploration geologist at Ground Truth Exploration from May 2019 to September 2019. More recently, he has been developing grassroots exploration projects within the Yukon for boots-on-the-ground prospecting. Ryan obtained a Bachelor of Science Geology, Honors, from Memorial University in 2018, and is a geologist in training with the professional engineers and geoscientists of Newfoundland and Labrador. He's also a member of PDAC and SEG. Thanks for joining us today, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me, Hallie. Where are you calling in from today? Uh, today, I'm calling in from the Eagle Gold Mine. I work full-time as a exploration geologist for Victoria Gold Corp. And somehow yet you still have time to uh, get into the YMAP program and have some of your own properties? Yeah, so one of the benefits of working with an operator is a lot of flexibility on my off time to go and pursue other things like obtaining YMAP grants and going out and prospecting in my spare time. So it's pretty great. You're a busy guy. <laughs> yeah. So what got you into the YMAP program in the first place? Like, How did you hear about it? And how many years have you been applying for YMAP grants? First heard about the YMAP program from my dad, actually, who is also a geologist. And he worked at the Yukon Geological Survey, I believe, from 1990 up until 2010. And he actually administered the funding for the program for a number of years. I guess him coming home and telling, uh, you know, about different prospectors, just hearing stories. One in particular that stuck with me was uh, Sean Ryan, a local prospector who in the early 2000s made a few discoveries through this YMAP program. So he's kind of a, got a good track record of success. So I started to look into it in a little bit more detail after I finished my undergraduate degree. And then in 2019 was the first year that I decided to put together a YMAP application. And I've been doing it ever since. Have they all been successful? Um, no. The YMAP program has a very strict criteria that they base projects on. And the best applications are chosen to receive funding. So in 2019, I put in two applications and only one was approved. In 2020, I think I put in four and I received two. And then last year as well, I think I put in three and I received two. It changes from year to year depending on how many applicants there are and the quality of the rest of the applications. Right, right. That makes sense. But congratulations on, it sounds like most of them have been successful. So that's great. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I understand you have two sort of main projects. You have a project that's near Whitehorse. Can you tell us about that and tell us how what the concept was and how your uh, YMAP grant has enabled you to do, do the work you need to do to figure out more about it? Sure. So the first project that I started to develop is 70 kilometers south of Whitehorse. And the rationale behind that project 
was there's actually a historical gold mine in the area that was producing between 1986 to 1988. And during those three years of production, there was quite a flurry of exploration activity in the area. And quite a few promising discoveries were made in 1988, which then never got follow up after the mine shut down. So I put together an application to go and revisit those historical showings. So the first thing I did was I performed a literature review of all the work that was done in the 1980s. And then I kind of ranked what I believe to be the most promising targets. And then I took into account the geological setting of the historical producing mine. It's called the Mount Skookum Gold Mine, and it's a classic low sulfidation epithermal gold deposit. Which, That's going to be my next question. What kind of deposit? <laughs> when it produced, I think it was around an average grade of eight grams per ton, and historical production was around 80,000 ounces of gold. There's also two other advanced stage deposits that have mineral resources on them. With that knowledge, I looked a little bit further south where another Eocene Age volcanic complex exists called the Bennett Lake Volcanic Complex. So it's similar in size and it's the same age. It consists of very similar geology to the Mount Skookum complex to the north. And in the past three years, I've discovered quite a bit of additional mineralization and how did you go about finding this mineralization, like from the literature review to staking the claims to getting on the ground? Like, was it road access? And what sort of exploration work did you actually get up to your first year of that program? In the first year in 2019, I staked 13 claims and went out with a university colleague, Charlie Pike, for nine days in early September as a helicopter accessible project. And we just you know, hiked around in the area and prospected, took geological mapping stations. Every time we came across rhyolite, andesite, or basalt dikes, which were likely Eocene aged, we mapped those out and just generally put together a geological picture of the area, which was followed up in 2020 with the program of uh, three people for 10 days. So we went back out and performed a ground magnetic survey, a till sampling survey, and then additional prospecting. And then that turned into 2021 work. And at this point, the claim block had grown from the original 13 claims all the way to 185. The story starts to develop a little more in terms of you know, what is contributing to the geology, you get an idea of structural trends and corridors of mineralization. And then you're just looking for that quartz vein float sample or uh, alteration where you see stringer veinlets in the rock as you get closer to a zone, or maybe you see some bleaching in the granite diorite, just anything to sort of vector you into potential areas of mineralization. And what have you found in terms of mineralized zones? Have you found different types of mineralization? Have you found something that you're hoping might be a drill target? Um, What's the best thing you found on this property? <laughs> well, there's essentially five showings that I've discovered over a five kilometer strike length that all seem to be related to uh, a main sort of northeast trending structural corridor. Each showing is related to this corridor and then intersecting east-west secondary faults. 
So the mineralization is really varied over the five kilometers. The highest grab sample ran 11,000 grams per ton silver, as well as a hand trench we dug in 2020 that returned almost, I think, 460 grams silver over eight meters, including a high-grade interval of 1,100 grams silver over two meters. And then as you move a little further north, there's another zone called the Silver Train, which is quite a bit of very oxidized quartz epidote vein float, which has occasional extremely high copper grades, up to 4 or 5%, paired with anomalous molybdenum, as well as decent silver grades. That's sort of a different signature where you've got those base metals coming in that are, uh, you know, perhaps you're getting a little bit closer to a heat source or you're lower down within kind of a intermediate sulfidation type system. So that main base metal rich showing, it's a kilometer away from a rhyolite dite, which has returned grab samples up to almost 50 grams gold. Like there's all this high grade vein material spatially associated with a dike about a kilometer away from this base metal rich area. So that's pretty interesting as well. Yeah. And what are your yeah. next steps to follow up on this stuff? Like what what do you are you going to be back there this summer? I would like to be, definitely. The kind of preliminary prospecting has led into the definition of these discrete zones for follow-up work. And the next step would be to do some detailed geological mapping, maybe one to 500 scale over those areas, as well as some hand trenching to better identify where these mineralized zones are occurring in subcrop or an outcrop and hopefully delineate a preliminary drilling target. Great. Yeah. Well, let's maybe switch gears just to your other project because I know you have a bunch going on with YMAP. Yeah. So my other project, it's located near Clare Lake, which is a large lake in the Yukon. The project itself is called the Catch Property. And the Catch Property was spurred from, I was reading uh, a BCGS publication from 2010, Porphyry Copper Assessment of British Columbia and Yukon Territory, Canada. And I was surprised when I looked at the maps, which show all these mines down in BC. And then as you go up into the Yukon, there's like hardly any. And there's this huge tract of area where there's like no mines. But, you know, geology doesn't really respect borders. Just because there's a border between BC and the Yukon doesn't mean that the geology shouldn't continue. I also read another paper by Rob Mackey, who took all the regional geochemical data, which is publicly available for the Yukon, and he compared them against different deposit types and then created heat maps of potential of getting that deposit type. So some sort of sophisticated machine learning process or something like that. Yeah, I remember seeing that work in a poster that they presented at, I guess it was Roundup one year. Yeah, interesting work that they did for sure on yeah. the regional data sets. Yeah, so at the end of the day, you get a nice heat map that can point you in the right direction. So the Clare Lake area has a very high probability for, I believe, those epithermal gold silver as well as porphyry copper molly potential. So I decided to look there and found basically a brand new area of mineralization that had never been found before. So I got super lucky. How did you find how did you find that? How did you go from the map to finding that? <laughs> uh, well, I wasn't just luck, I'm sure. Well, so 
I took Rob Mackey's data, and then I also looked at the regional magnetic data, and there was an interesting magnetic anomaly as well in the area. And I also looked at proximity to large-scale crustal faults, and the catch property is four kilometers away from the Teslin fault. So these are all different tidbits of data that kind of led me to go and initially do a program where we took 500 meter space till samples over a 25 square kilometer area. So, And how many of you did that? That seems like a lot of work for just, just uh, a prospector. Just four, but super good team. My partner, Kate, she went out and I took her out for the very first time to do soil sampling, which she was super good at. She and passed that, the test. <laughs> yeah. My, my good friend, Laura, as well. And then a colleague of mine named Logan Roots. So between the four of us, we collected this really good base data set. So we collected 115 till samples, 32 stream sediment samples, and then I also collected um, about 60 rock samples. And the data indicated that there was some copper anomalism on the northern end of the sample grid. So I went back and followed that up in 2021 with detailed 100 meter by 100 meter grid over that main area. Mineralization in some of these soil anomalies was to 1% copper. Highest gold value from a soil sample was like 2.3 grams a ton gold. This large anomaly started to make itself known and worked with the data and packaged it up in kind of a succinct executive summary. And then I started marketing the project to a company called ATAC Resources rests uh, interest and we went ahead and signed a confidentiality agreement eventually led into a successful option agreement and now they're now they have the option to earn 100 percent interest in that property and going to be doing some work on it this year so that's an exciting uh, exciting development on that one for sure congratulations yeah, thanks so what would the ideal next next few years look like for you what do you think they could potentially find at the catch property well uh, tax planning on running uh, 20 kilometers of fine IP. And they're also going to be following, I think, more detailed sampling in that main zone that the hopes of identifying a preliminary target, which would be drilled as early as summer 2023. If they're successful, delineating a drill target and they, they have success in their maiden drill hole, and that'll obviously lead into more extensive drilling and hopefully resource definition. I mean, that's a pretty, it's kind of like a little situation, yeah, but... Um, Best possible case scenario. Time will tell. So the prize is a shallow buried porphyry system. Yeah, essentially. A lot of the soil geochemistry is very elevated in copper and gold. Rocks on the property are super altered and oxidized, have fairly extensive politic alteration in minor zones of archaeation and uh, malachite staining and some areas as well have developed zones of summer anhydrite kind of on the underside of a lot of the rocks on surface so very least it just shows that it's a very oxidized system the basalts in theory are so altered on surface that the 100 or 200 meters below surface could be a causative realizing intrusion has created these localized zones of brecciation and alteration in the overlying mafic volcanics. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's exciting stuff, Ryan. Thanks for taking the time to join us today on the podcast, and I'll be staying tuned to figure out what's uh, happening next with your property. Yeah, thanks for having me, Holly. I really appreciate it. And now for the post-summer interviews. First, we will welcome back Jack Milton to discuss how his field season went in terms of his prospecting adventures. This interview was recorded in September 2022. Thanks very much for coming back on the episode, Jack. Yeah, thanks, Ali. Thanks for uh, yeah having me back on the show. So when we last spoke, I think you were about to go up for both your, your full-time job and uh, to do some work on your claims up in the Yukon. So did you get up there? I did. I did manage to get out to uh, to my claims just a couple of weeks ago in the Dawson Range in Yukon. So yeah, I was out there just for a very short uh, focus program and it was uh, four days long and uh, did a bit of sort of targeted soil sampling and following up on some of these anomalies that have generated using zircons in stream settlements. So you said that last summer you got the right age zircons. Um, was there anything else you were looking for? Was it just just the zircon age and zircon chemistry? That's right. So yeah, the main sort of technique that I've used is to just look for the age of the zircons. And the chemistry of the zircons is a little bit secondary to uh, the technique. And I think the strength of it really is looking for the age due to you know, this really strong association in Yukon between very late Cretaceous intrusions uh, and copper mineralization. And you, know, you look at almost all the intrusions of that age across Yukon and they're mineralized, but they're quite small volume. And finding drainages with these zircons over the past couple of years has been uh, you know, the focus of the program. And this year was really following up on that and trying to sort of demonstrate a, that this that this method works and that it's you know a valuable tool to go and reduce this sort of area selection when you're looking at these large sort of regional programs and to demonstrate that there's something there and something worth following up on so it's uh, yeah it was an intense you know four days of, of work and too early for results yet and I'm sure just like everyone else is uh, facing these long queues at the labs here it'll be a couple of months before we get any uh, soil results back on that. Yeah, we've had a uh, very long wait times for our labs too. And how did you go from your zircon ages to then doing a soil sampling program? How did you figure out where in these catchments where you had the right age zircons, where to actually do a soil grid? Yeah, that's a good question. So I focused the effort down over two different years of, of sort of regional sampling. And the first year was doing a assessing an area of reasonably large area in the Dawson Range. And the second year was narrowing that focus down into smaller and smaller drainages and trying to follow them up and find these nested drainages that are producing zircons of the right age. And I was able to do that over the past couple of years to reduce that area selection to a level that I could reasonably go in and stake it by myself. And when the area has been reduced that much, it's a relatively small soil program to go out and test those targets. And so I think a lot of the value in the technique is reducing this risk at the early stage of expiration. And, you know, the risk is very high at that stage because if you get it wrong, then every penny that you spend thereafter is a complete waste of money. So I think that, you know, it's uh, another tool that people can use to select tenure and follow it up with uh, with other methods that are appropriate for those areas. Such as soil sampling. Exactly. And in the Dawson Range, there's, you know, good residual soils developed and, you know, previous soil programs had looked only for copper. And in these kind of oxidized terrains, 
those sufficient materials may have very, very weakly anomalous levels of copper in soil uh, and may have gone overlooked. And how closely spaced was your grid? I was doing a sort of 100 meters spaced grid over an anomalous area that uh, I identified last year. I actually did a very small amount of soil sampling uh, and identified one anomalous area and did a follow-up grid at 100 meters spacing on that. Uh, and the rest was contour sampling. And it was using some of the official geology mapping that the YGS has put out to choose those areas so that they're truly representing these sort of basis slope colluvial uh, sufficient materials that are either in situ or have just moved a short distance down slope. Was it just you that went back out to do a soil grid or did you have a team of people with you? Yeah, so this year I, I hired uh, three other people and uh, they came out me- with me and uh, and helped me on a s- small soil sampling program. So it was fly camping and soil sampling over uh, over a few days. I think, you know, reducing that area to that level allowed that focused uh, program to happen. When working in remote places, especially, efficiency is key because your costs are pretty much directly proportional to the time that you spend out in the bush. The first year I did this program, uh, that was done in one day of sampling. Yeah. And one day of helicopter time versus 10 days, 20 days, you know, that's, that's an order of magnitude difference. I guess with your full-time work, how does that conflict, if at all? I mean, if you didn't have your full-time job, would you have done more this summer? Do you think you still would have just done this short program because you've narrowed down the area so much? Yeah, I think that, you know, the sort of constraints of working a full-time job as well as doing this in your spare time, you know, definitely limits the amount of time that's available. But since they reduced the minimum amount of time on these programs, which happened just a few years ago, you used to have to spend a minimum of 30 days out in the bush. And that was sort of it in direct conflict with my vision for the technique, which is to not make it 30 days, is to make it one day or two days or three days, but cover the same area that you would in a 30-day program of slogging through a bush. Crazy. Yeah, I can see how that would be at at odds with uh, full-time work. Um, Were you in the field all summer for your job as well? I was. So yeah, my day job is, you know, with with Fireweed Zinc, or actually this year we rebranded to a a critical metals company and renamed ourselves uh, Fireweed Metals. And yeah, that kept me very busy between between juggling those different projects in my uh, my day job and doing this in in my time off. It was uh, it was a very, very busy summer. No kidding. Yeah. What's next for you then in terms of the YMAP? Are you just going to send your samples off for analysis, wait for the results, and then figure out what you're going to do next year? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot will depend on those results for those claims. But, you know, I feel like I've, if these results prove up something uh, that looks anomalous and looks like a decent target, then I think I'd be at the stage where I'd uh, want to try and sort of shop it around and option it off to... Uh, an exploration company. So uh, yeah, in terms of what's next for me in, in YMAP, uh, I think if I can establish that this technique works is take it to the next spot in the Yukon and figure out you know where the next one of these deposits is going to be and try and use this te- technique more systematically uh, across a bigger area in Yukon. You guys have been making me very tempted to apply for one of these YMAP grants, but I spent my entire summer in the bush already. So yeah, maybe, maybe yeah. another year. Yeah. <laughs> Exciting. Yeah. You know, I, I'd say, you know, if you've got a new idea, if you've got a concept that you've always thought about, you know, get out there and go, go chase after it and go and find the next deposit. Cool. Thanks Jack for your time. I really appreciate it. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing what you do next. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. And as for Ryan Berkey, what exploration work was done on his claims this summer? This second interview with Ryan was also recorded in September of 2022. 
Thanks for uh, coming back on the podcast again, Ryan, at the end of the summer. I want to hear all about the catch property. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me back late in the season. I'm glad our schedules aligned and we could sit down for a talk. Yeah, so I, I've obviously been following your, your LinkedIn and your dad's LinkedIn and ATAC, um, and I've seen a lot regarding the catch property. So it seems a lot's happened since we last spoke at the end of April. And, and they're drilling now there. Can you tell me what's gone on since we last talked? Yeah, so over Christmas, ATAC optioned the property and they had a, a work commitment to spend $150,000 on the project. And this year, they obviously went out and had a closer look and started to plan a more extensive program than, than they had first kind of envisioned. So They've run ground magnetics on the property, IP soil sampling, and they received their surface rock results. And they found lots of additional mineralization, like a kilometer south of the main target area. They found a rock that graded over 1% copper. They found another rock that was 1% copper and one gram per ton gold. And then when the IP results came back, at depth, there was this very um, sharp break in like contrasting rock properties for both chargeability and resistivity, which likely indicates some sort of large structure at depth. So all the stars aligned with the data and it was confident enough to get through and decide to do a maiden drilling program. So they fast-tracked the project and they just collared their first hole on September 1st. This is September 6th. So I'm excited to see how how the program goes for them. Wow. Are they RC drilling or diamond drilling? Uh, they're RC drilling this year. Just a quick test of the mineralization. And best case scenario would be they have encouraging results again and hopefully would follow that up with the diamond drilling program next season. That's really, really cool. That's probably like the best you could have hoped for this year, eh? The, this initial summer program. Oh, definitely. When I, when I first optioned the property to them, I thought that maybe the maiden drilling program would happen in 2023. So to have encouraging results that warrant drilling early on is a testament to good data collection on my part in 2019 and 2020, and then also continued effort and really good supplementary data generated by ATAC. They're a really good group. So they're drilling beneath some of the surface trenches that I dug last year that have good solid mineralization in outcrop that also there's this geophysical anomaly that's correlating as well. Nobody really knows what it is, but there's good copper signature and good gold as well as the occasional and lead zinc hit as well. So it's interesting mineralization and there's no historical work for over 50 kilometers in any direction. So it really represents a brand new area within the Yukon. That's pretty um, exciting. Yeah, hopefully when the results come back, a little bit more information is, is received and you can make an educated guess about what it could be. What's the host? Is it volcanic? Is it porphyry? Is it none of the above? The host rock is extremely oxidized triassic basalts, augite fured basalt. Okay. So, yeah, but there are occasional quartz feldspar porphyry dikes. They're rare that occur on the property. And the mineralization is kind of cryptic besides malachite staining on surface. But as soon as you open a rock up that's not a fracture surface, the mineralization kind of presents itself just as disseminated pyrite and blebby, sometimes blebby calcopyrite, 
ATAC recently identified some boronite, but there's a distinct lack of quartz veining, but the oxidation is quite intense. And sometimes you get really prominent bugs developed within the basalts as well. So, Well, if it's an alkalic porphyry and it's silica undersaturated, then I guess you wouldn't expect quartz veining. So that's a possibility. Maybe. I don't know. I've not been up there. Yeah. I mean, in talking recently with ATAC, we've kind of arm waved that it's either a high sulfidation epithermal target or it is some sort of cryptic alkalic porphyry signature. The presence of boronite is interesting. I'd be keen to hear if they find more boronite and what the what the zonation looks like. Yeah, that's what they had identified in their they've got a recent post on LinkedIn that says that. But I don't know, you never know until the assays come in. We'll just have to wait and see what the results look like. So what does their program look like? It sounds like it's a fairly large program with a lot going on, but they're basing their operations out of a near the nearby community of Carmax. So there's an airstrip nearby and a staging area. So they're just visiting the property daily to and from as well as doing crew changes daily with the helicopter. Right. And the crew's mm-hmm. just staying in CarMax then at like a, a campground or something or? Yeah, they're staying at a local hotel there. Okay. I saw last summer that the coal mine campground was being sold. Did mm-hmm. someone buy it? Or is it still there? Yeah, it's still for sale. You can move up from Vancouver anytime and <laughs> flip burgers for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. That would actually be a pretty sweet job. Those burgers are good, and that spot on the Yukon River is beautiful. So Yeah, it is. It's really nice. And then what about your other property that we spoke about in April, the base metals one that's a bit more sort of enigmatic and had all those different mineralized zones? Um, have you done any work on that this summer, or have you mostly been just working full-time? So that property was optioned as well. Really? Yeah, to a company called Transition Metals. So they're based, they're a project generator that's based out of Sudbury. And they really were, again, interested sort of by that five kilometer stretch of varied zones of mineralization. They've done a phase one field program. I think the assays are still pending, so they need to wait until they have results in hand before we have a conversation about the next steps. But they're also out there working that project as well. So it's been a really good summer for me, which is kind of contrasting to the to the broader markets right now. It's yeah, things aren't really looking so hot on that front. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I've got a I've hit a patch of good weather. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's super exciting. And so do you have any other areas that you're interested in going prospecting? You seem to be doing pretty well for yourself with these two properties. <laughs> well, both the deals are only in year one. So the deals would have to continue on into year two or year three before I really start to see it, a tangible personal benefit from the options. But I always have a list of areas that I want to go and see. I've actually gone out this summer to two different areas and the projects I think need a little bit more data before they're ready to uh, put out to companies to see if there's any interest in them. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. And if you had like a, a word of wisdom to aspiring prospectors, like what would you say to someone who who's listening to this and thinks, I want to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think if you really love geology and want to test your own ideas, it's amazing that this YMET program exists to help offset the total costs that you incur during this preliminary phase of prospecting. If you're 
inspired, I guess, then you'll find a way to make it happen. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you live in the Yukon and you have YMAP. <laughs> yes, exactly. It helps yeah. quite a bit. So Awesome. Well, thanks again for doing two interviews for this podcast. I'm definitely excited to hear about what happens with the catch and the Pike Warden properties going forward. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll do another follow-up episode sometime next year. Yeah, that would be great. Thanks for having me on again. And I'm glad that the field season's been going well for everyone so far. So It's a good yeah. part of the job. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for joining us on the Discovery to Recovery podcast. I am Hallie Keevil, one of the hosts of this podcast series. Please join us next week for another prospecting episode, this time with Sean Ryan and both Jessica and Katerina Bjorkman of Bjorkman Prospecting. I will also host next week's episode. You can access past episodes on segweb.org slash podcasts. Be sure to follow the SEG on Twitter, LinkedIn, and other social media channels to get notified when the next episode comes out. A huge thank you to Scott Castleman, Jack Milton, and Ryan Berkey, who generously gave us their time and insight for this podcast episode. This episode was written and produced by myself, Hallie Keevil of Anglo-American, with editing support from Ann Thompson, Aisha Ahmed, Sam Weatherly, and Britt Blumel. Our theme music is Confluence by Eastwinds from their album Confluence. You can check them out at eastwinds.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode, and we'll catch you again next week.